Chapter Three of John Thorndyke's Cases by R. Austin Freeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Anthropologist at Large. Thorndyke was not a newspaper reader. He viewed with extreme disfavour all scrappy and miscellaneous forms of literature, which, by presenting a disorderly series of unrelated items of information, tended, as he considered, to destroy the habit of consecutive mental effort. It is most important, he once remarked to me, habitually to pursue a definite train of thought and to pursue it to a finish, instead of flitting indolently from one uncompleted topic to another, as the newspaper reader is so apt to do. Still, there is no harm in a daily paper, so long as you don't read it. Accordingly, he patronised a morning paper, and his method of dealing with it was characteristic. The paper was laid on the table after breakfast, together with a blue pencil and a pair of office shears. A preliminary glance through the sheets enabled him to mark with the pencil those paragraphs that were to be read, and these were presently cut out and looked through, after which they were either thrown away or set aside to be pasted in an indexed book. The whole proceeding occupied on an average a quarter of an hour. On the morning of which I am now speaking, he was thus engaged. The pencil had done its work, and the snick of the shears announced the final stage. Presently he paused with a newly excised cutting between his fingers, and after glancing at it for a moment, he handed it to me. Another art robbery, he remarked, mysterious affairs, these, as to motive, I mean, you can't melt down a picture or an ivory carving, and you can't put them on the market as they stand. The very qualities that give them their value make them totally unnegotiable. Yes, I suppose, said I, the really inveterate collector, the pottery or stamp maniac, for instance, will buy these contraband goods even though he dare not show them. Probably, no doubt the cupiditas abendi, the mere desire to possess, is the motive force rather than any intelligent purpose. The discussion was at this point interrupted by a knock at the door, and a moment later my colleague admitted two gentlemen. One of these I recognised as a Mr. Marchmont, a solicitor, for whom we had occasionally acted. The other was a stranger, a typical Hebrew of the blonde type, good-looking, faultlessly dressed, carrying a bandbox, and obviously in a state of the most extreme agitation. "'Good morning to you, gentlemen,' said Mr. Marchmont, shaking hands cordially. "'I have brought a client of mine to see you, and when I tell you that his name is Solomon Lowe, it will be unnecessary for me to say what our business is.' "'Oddly enough,' replied Thorndyke, "'we were, at the very moment when you knocked, discussing the bearings of his case.' "'It is a horrible affair,' burst in Mr. Lowe. "'I am distracted. I am ruined. I am in despair.' He banged the bandbox down on the table, and, flinging himself into a chair, buried his face in his hands. "'Come, come,' remonstrated Marchmont. "'We must be brave. We must be composed. "'Tell Dr. Thorndyke your story, and let us hear what he thinks of it.' He leaned back in his chair and looked at his client with that air of patient fortitude 
that comes to us all so easily when we contemplate the misfortunes of other people. "'You must help us, sir,' exclaimed Lowe, starting up again. "'You must, indeed, or I shall go mad. "'But I shall tell you what has happened, and then you must act at once. "'Spare no effort and no expense. "'Money is no object, at least not in reason,' he added, with native caution. "'He sat down once more, and in perfect English, "'though with a slight German accent, proceeded volubly.' My brother Isaac is probably known to you by name. Thorndyke nodded. He is a great collector and to some extent a dealer. That is to say, he makes his hobby a profitable hobby. What does he collect? asked Thorndyke. Everything, replied our visitor, flinging his hands apart with a comprehensive gesture. Everything that is precious and beautiful. Pictures, ivories, jewels watches, objects of art, and vertu, everything. He is a Jew, and he has that passion for things that are rich and costly that has distinguished our race from the time of my namesake Solomon onwards. His house in Howard Street, Piccadilly, is at once a museum and an art gallery. The rooms are filled with cases of gems, of antique jewellery, of coins and historic relics, some of priceless value, and the walls are covered with paintings, every one of which is a masterpiece. There is a fine collection of ancient weapons and armour, both European and Oriental, rare books, manuscripts, papyri and valuable antiquities, from Egypt, Assyria, Cyprus and elsewhere. You see, his taste is quite Catholic, and his knowledge of rare and curious things is probably greater than that of any other living man. He is never mistaken, no forgery deceives him, and hence the great prices that he obtains. For a work of art purchased from Isaac Lowe is a work certified as genuine, beyond all cavil. He paused to mop his face with a silk handkerchief, and then, with the same plaintive volubility, continued. My brother is unmarried, he lives for his collection, and he lives with it. The house is not a very large one, and the collection takes up most of it, but he keeps a suite of rooms for his own occupation, and has two servants, a man and wife, to look after him. The man, who is a retired police sergeant, acts as caretaker and watchman, the woman as housekeeper and cook if required, but my brother lives largely at his club, and now I come to this present catastrophe. He ran his fingers through his hair and took a deep breath and continued. Yesterday morning Isaac started for Florence by way of Paris, but his route was not certain, and he intended to break his journey at various points as circumstances determined. Before leaving he put his collection in my charge, and it was arranged that I should occupy his rooms in his absence. Accordingly, I sent my things round and took possession. Now, Dr. Thorndyke, I am closely connected with the drama, and it is my custom to spend my evenings at my club, of which most of the members are actors. Consequently, I am rather late in my habits, but last night I was earlier than usual in leaving my club for I started for my brother's house before half-past twelve. 
I felt, as you may suppose, the responsibility of the great charge I had undertaken, and you may therefore imagine my horror, my consternation, my despair, when on letting myself in with my latch-key, I found a police inspector, a sergeant, and a constable in the hall. There had been a robbery, sir, in my absence, and the account that the inspector gave of the affair was briefly this. While taking the round of his district, he had noticed an empty hansom proceeding in leisurely fashion along Howard Street. There was nothing remarkable in this, and when, about ten minutes later, he was returning and met a hansom which he believed to be the same, proceeding along the same street in the same direction and at the same easy pace, the circumstances struck him as odd and he made a note of the number of the cab in his pocket-book. It was 72863, and the time was 11.35. At 11.45, a constable coming up Howard Street noticed a hansom standing opposite the door of my brother's house, and while he was looking at it, a man came out of the house, carrying something which he put in the cab. On this, the constable quickened his pace, and when the man returned to the house and reappeared, carrying what looked like a portmanteau and closing the door softly behind him, the policeman's suspicions were aroused, and he hurried forward, hailing the cabman to stop. The man put his burden into the cab and sprang in himself. The cabman lashed his horse, which started off at a gallop, and the policeman broke into a run blowing his whistle and flashing his lantern onto the cab. He followed it round the two turnings into Albemarle Street and was just in time to see it turn into Piccadilly, where, of course, it was lost. However, he managed to note the number of the cab, which was 72863, and he describes the man as short and thick-set and thinks he was not wearing any hat. As he was returning, he met the inspector and the sergeant, who had heard the whistle, and on his report the three officers hurried to the house, where they knocked and rang for some minutes without any result. Being now more than suspicious, they went to the back of the house through the mews, where, with great difficulty, they managed to force a window and effect an entrance into the house. Here their suspicions were soon changed to certainty, for on reaching the first floor, they heard strange muffled groans proceeding from one of the rooms, the door of which was locked, though the key had not been removed. They opened the door and found the caretaker and his wife sitting on the floor with their backs against the wall. Both were bound hand and foot, and the head of each was enveloped in a green bias bag, and when the bags were taken off, each was found to be lightly but effectively gagged. Each told the same story. The caretaker, fancying he heard a noise, armed himself with a truncheon and came downstairs to the first floor, where he found the door of one of the rooms open and a light burning inside. He stepped on tiptoe to the open door and was peering in when he was seized from behind, half suffocated by a pad held over his mouth, pinioned, gagged, and blindfolded with the bag. His assailant, whom he never saw, was amazingly strong and skilful, and handed him with perfect ease 
although he, the caretaker, is a powerful man and a good boxer and wrestler. The same thing happened to the wife who had come down to look for her husband. She walked into the same trap and was gagged, pinioned and blindfolded without ever having seen the robber. So the only description that we have of this villain is that furnished by the constable. And the caretaker had no chance of using his truncheon, said Thorndyke. Well, he got in one backhanded blow over his right shoulder, which he thinks caught the burglar in the face, but the fellow caught him by the elbow and gave his arm such a twist that he dropped the truncheon on the floor. Is the robbery a very extensive one? Ah, exclaimed Mr. Lowe, that is just what we cannot say, but I fear it is. It seems that my brother had quite recently drawn out of his bank four thousand pounds in notes and gold. These little transactions are often carried out in cash rather than by cheque. Here I caught a twinkle in Thorndyke's eye, and the caretaker says that a few days ago Isaac brought home several parcels, which were put away temporarily in a strong cupboard. He seemed to be very pleased with his new acquisitions, and gave the caretaker to understand that they were of extraordinary rarity and value. Now this cupboard has been cleared out, not a vestige is left in it, but the wrappings of the parcels, so, although nothing else has been touched, it is pretty clear that goods to the value of £4,000 have been taken, but when we consider what an excellent buyer my brother is, it becomes highly probable that the actual value of those things is two or three times that amount, or even more. It is dreadful, dreadful business and Isaac will hold me responsible for it all. Is there no further clue, asked Thorndyke. What about the cab, for instance? Oh, the cab, groaned low. That clue failed. The police must have mistaken the number. They telephoned immediately to all the police stations, and a watch was set with the result that number 72863 was stopped as it was going home for the night. But it then turned out that the cab had not been off the rank since eleven o'clock, and the driver had been in the shelter all the time with several other men. But there is a clue. I have it here. Mr. Lowe's face brightened for once as he reached out for the bandbox. The houses in Howard Street, he explained, as he untied the fastening, have small balconies to the first floor windows at the back. Now the thief entered by one of these windows, having climbed up a rainwater pipe to the balcony. It was a gusty night, as you will remember, and this morning, as I was leaving the house, the butler next door called to me and gave me this. He had found it lying in the balcony of his house. He opened the bandbox with a flourish and brought forth a rather shabby billycock hat. I understand, said he, that by examining a hat, it is possible to deduce from it not only the bodily characteristics of the wearer, but also his mental and moral qualities, his state of health, his pecuniary position, his past history, and even his domestic relations, and the peculiarities of his place of abode. Am I right in this supposition? The ghost of a smile flitted across Thorndyke's face as he laid the hat upon the remains of the newspaper. We must not expect too much, he observed. Hats, as you know, have a way of changing owners. 
Your own hat, for instance, a very spruce, hard felt, is a new one, I think. Got it last week, said Mr. Lowe. Exactly. It is an expensive hat by Lincoln and Bennett, and I see you have judiciously written your name in indelible marking ink on the lining. Now a new hat suggests a discarded predecessor. What did you do with your old hats? My man has them, but they don't fit him. I suppose he sells them or gives them away. Very well. Now, a good hat like yours has a long life and remains serviceable long after it has become shabby and the probability is that many of your hats pass from owner to owner, from you to the shabby genteel, from them to the shabby ungenteel. And it is a fair assumption that there are, at this moment, an appreciable number of tramps and casuals wearing hats by Lincoln and Bennett, marked in indelible ink, with the name S. Lowe, and anyone who should examine those hats, as you suggest, might draw some very misleading deductions as to the personal habits of S. Lowe. Mr. Marchmont chuckled audibly, and then, remembering the gravity of the occasion, suddenly became portentously solemn. So you think that the hat is of no use after all, said Mr. Lowe, in a tone of deep disappointment. I won't say that, replied Thorndyke. We may learn something from it. Leave it with me, at any rate, but you must let the police know that I have it. They will want to see it, of course. And you will try to get those things, won't you? pleaded Low. I will think over the case, but you understand, or Mr. Marchmont does, that this is hardly in my province. I am a medical jurist, and this is not a medico-legal case. Just what I told him, said Marchmont, but you will do me a great kindness if you will look into the matter. Make it a medico-legal case, he added persuasively. Thorndyke repeated his promise, and the two men took their departure. For some time after they had left, my colleague remained silent, regarding the hat with a quizzical smile. It is like a game of forfeits, he remarked at length, and we have to find the owner of this very pretty thing. He lifted it with a pair of forceps into a better light and began to look at it more closely. Perhaps, said he, we have done Mr. Lowe an injustice. After all, this is certainly a very remarkable hat. It is as round as a basin, I exclaimed. Why, the fellow's head must have been turned in a lathe. Thorndyke laughed. The point, said he, is this. This is a hard hat and so must have fitted fairly, or it could not have been worn. And it was a cheap hat, and so was not made to measure. But a man with a head that shape has got to come to a clear understanding with his hat. No ordinary hat would go on at all. Now, you see what he has done, no doubt on the advice of some friendly hatter. He has bought a hat of suitable size, and he has made it hot, probably steamed it. Then he has jammed it, while still hot and soft, onto his head, and allowed it to cool and set before removing it. That is evident from the distortion of the brim. The important corollary is that this hat fits his head exactly, is in fact a perfect mould of it, and this fact, together with the cheap quality of the hat, 
furnishes the further corollary that it has probably only had a single owner. And now let us turn it over and look at the outside. You notice at once the absence of old dust. Allowing for the circumstance that it had been out all night, it is decidedly clean. Its owner has been in the habit of brushing it, and is therefore presumably a decent, orderly man. But if you look at it in a good light, you see a kind of bloom on the felt, and through this lens you can make out particles of a fine white powder, which has worked into the surface. He handed me his lens, through which I could distinctly see the particles to which he referred. Then he continued, under the curl of the brim, and in the folds of the hat-band where the brush has not been able to reach it, the powder has collected quite thickly, and we can see that it is a very fine powder and very white, like flour. What do you make of that? I should say that it is connected with some industry. He may be engaged in some factory or works, or at any rate may live near a factory and have to pass it frequently. Yes, and I think we can distinguish between the two possibilities. For if he only passes the factory, the dust will be on the outside of the hat only. The inside will be protected by his head. But if he is engaged in the works, the dust will be inside too, as the hat will hang on a peg in the dust-laden atmosphere, and his head will also be powdered, and so convey the dust to the inside. He turned the hat over once more, and as I brought the powerful lens to bear upon the dark lining, I could clearly distinguish a number of white particles in the interstices of the fabric. The powder is on the inside too, I said. He took the lens from me, and having verified my statement, proceeded with the examination. You notice, he said, that the leather head lining is stained with grease, and this staining is more pronounced at the sides and back. His hair, therefore, is naturally greasy, or he greases it artificially, for if the staining were caused by perspiration, it would be most marked opposite the forehead. He peered anxiously into the interior of the hat, and eventually turned down the head lining, and immediately there broke out upon his face a gleam of satisfaction. Ha! he exclaimed. This is a stroke of luck. I was afraid our neat and orderly friend had defeated us with his brush. Pass me the small dissecting forceps, Jervis. I handed him the instrument, and he proceeded to pick out daintily from the space behind the head lining some half a dozen short pieces of hair which he laid with infinite tenderness on a sheet of white paper. There are several more on the other side, I said, pointing them out to him. Yes, but we must leave some for the police, he answered with a smile. They must have the same chance as ourselves, you know. But surely, I said, as I bent down over the paper, these are pieces of horsehair. I think not, he replied, but the microscope will show. At any rate, this is the kind of hair I should expect to find with a head of that shape. Well, it is extraordinarily coarse, said I, and two of the hairs are nearly white. Yes, black hairs beginning to turn grey, and now, as our preliminary survey has given such encouraging results, we will proceed to more exact methods, and we must waste no time, for we shall have the police here presently to rob us of our treasure. 
he folded up carefully the paper containing the hairs and taking the hat in both hands as though it were some sacred vessel ascended with me to the laboratory on the next floor now polton he said to his laboratory assistant we have here a specimen for examination and time is precious first of all we want your patent dust extractor the little man bustled to a cupboard and brought forth a singular appliance of his own manufacture somewhat like a miniature vacuum cleaner it had been made from a bicycle foot pump by reversing the piston valve and was fitted with a glass nozzle and a small detachable glass receiver for collecting the dust at the end of a flexible metal tube we will sample the dust from the outside first said thorndyke laying the hat upon the workbench are you ready polton the assistant slipped his foot into the stirrup of the pump and worked the handle vigorously while thorndyke drew the glass nozzle slowly along the hat brim under the curled edge and as the nozzle passed along the white coating vanished as if by magic leaving the felt absolutely clean and black and simultaneously the glass receiver became clouded over with a white deposit we will leave the other side for the police said thorndyke and as polton ceased pumping he detached the receiver and laid it on a sheet of paper on which he wrote in pencil outside and covered it with a small bell glass a fresh receiver having been fitted on the nozzle was now drawn over the silk lining of the hat and then through the space behind the leather head lining on one side and now the dust that collected in the receiver was much of the usual grey colour and fluffy texture and included two more hairs and now said thorndyke when the second receiver had been detached and set aside we want a mould of the inside of the hat and we must make it by the quickest method there is no time to make a paper mould it is a most astonishing head he added reaching down from a nail a pair of large calipers which he applied to the inside of the hat six inches and nine tenths long by six and six tenths broad which gives us he made a rapid calculation on a scrap of paper the extraordinarily high cephalic index of ninety five point six polton now took possession of the hat and having stuck a band of wet tissue paper round the inside mixed a small bowl of plaster of paris and very dexterously ran a stream of the thick liquid onto the tissue paper where it quickly solidified a second and third application resulted in a broad ring of solid plaster an inch thick forming a perfect mould of the inside of the hat and in a few minutes the slight contraction of the plaster in setting rendered the mould sufficiently loose to allow of its being slipped out onto a board to dry we were none too soon for even as polton was removing the mould the electric bell which i had switched on to the laboratory announced a visitor and when i went down i found a police sergeant waiting with a note from superintendent miller requesting an immediate transfer of the hat the next thing to be done said thorndyke when the sergeant had departed with the bandbox is to measure the thickness of the hairs and make a transverse section of one and examine the dust the section we will leave to polton as time is an object polton 
you had better embed the hair in thick gum and freeze it hard on the microtome and be very careful to cut the section at right angles to the length of the hair meanwhile we will get to work with the microscope the hairs proved on measurement to have a surprisingly large diameter of one one-thirty-fifth of an inch fully double that of ordinary hairs although they were unquestionably human as to the white dust it presented a problem that even thorndyke was unable to solve the application of reagents showed it to be carbonate of lime but its source for a time remained a mystery the larger particles said thorndyke with his eye applied to the microscope appeared to be transparent crystalline and distinctly laminated in structure it is not chalk it is not whiting it is not any kind of cement what can it be could it be any kind of shell i suggested for instance of course he exclaimed starting up you have hit it jervis as you always do it must be mother of pearl polton give me a pearl shirt button out of your oddments box the button was duly produced by the thrifty polton dropped into an agate mortar and speedily reduced to powder a tiny pinch of which thorndyke placed under the microscope this powder said he is naturally much coarser than our specimen but the identity of character is unmistakable jervis you are a treasure just look at it i glanced down the microscope and then pulled out my watch yes i said there is no doubt about it i think but i must be off anstey urged me to be in court by eleven-thirty at the latest with infinite reluctance i collected my notes and papers and departed leaving thorndyke diligently copying addresses out of the post office directory my business at the court detained me the whole of the day and it was near upon dinner-time when i reached our chambers thorndyke had not yet come in but he arrived half an hour later tired and hungry and not very communicative what have i done he repeated in answer to my inquiries i have walked miles of dirty pavement and i have visited every pearl-shell cutters in london with one exception and i have not found what i was looking for the one mother-of-pearl factory that remains however is the most likely and i propose to look in there to-morrow morning meanwhile we have completed our data with polton's assistance here is a tracing of our friend's skull taken from the mould you see it is an extreme type of brachycephalic skull and markedly unsymmetrical here is a transverse section of his hair which is quite circular unlike yours or mine which would be oval we have the mother-of-pearl dust from the outside of the hat and from the inside similar dust mixed with various fibres and a few granules of rice starch those are our data supposing the hat should not be that of the burglar after all i suggested that would be annoying but i think it is his and i think i can guess at the nature of the art treasures that were stolen and you don't intend to enlighten me my dear fellow he replied you have all the data enlighten yourself by the exercise of your own brilliant faculties don't give way to mental indolence 
i endeavoured from the facts in my possession to construct the personality of the mysterious burglar and failed utterly nor was i more successful in my endeavour to guess at the nature of the stolen property and it was not until the following morning when we had set out on our quest and were approaching limehouse that thorndyke would revert to the subject we are now he said going to the factory of badcombe and martin shell importers and cutters in the west india dock road if i don't find my man there i shall hand the facts over to the police and waste no more time over the case what is your man like i asked i am looking for an elderly japanese wearing a new hat or more probably a cap and having a bruise on his right cheek or temple i am also looking for a cab yard but here we are at the works and as it is now close on the dinner hour we will wait and see the hands come out before making any inquiries we walked slowly past the tall blank-faced building and were just turning to repass it when a steam whistle sounded a wicket opened in the main gate and a stream of workmen each powdered with white like a miller emerged into the street we halted to watch the men as they came out one by one through the wicket and turned to the right or left towards their homes or some adjacent coffee shop but none of them answered to the description that my friend had given the outcoming stream grew thinner and at length ceased the wicket was shut with a bang and once more thorndyke's quest appeared to have failed is that all of them i wonder he said with a shade of disappointment in his tone but even as he spoke the wicket opened again and a leg protruded the leg was followed by a back and a curious globular head covered with iron-grey hair and surmounted by a cloth cap the whole appertaining to a short very thick-set man who remained thus evidently talking to someone inside suddenly he turned his head to look across the street and immediately i recognised by the pallid yellow complexion and narrow eye slits the physiognomy of a typical japanese the man remained talking for nearly another minute then drawing out his other leg he turned towards us and now i perceived that the right side of his face over the prominent cheekbone was discoloured as though by a severe bruise ha said thorndyke turning round sharply as the man approached either this is our man or it is an incredible coincidence he walked away at a moderate pace allowing the japanese to overtake us slowly and when the man had at length passed us he increased his speed somewhat so as to maintain the distance our friend stepped along briskly and presently turned up a side street whither we followed at a respectful distance thorndyke holding open his pocket-book and appearing to engage me in an earnest discussion but keeping a sharp eye on his quarry there he goes said my colleague as the man suddenly disappeared the house with the green window sashes that will be number thirteen it was and having verified the fact we passed on and took the next turning that would lead us back to the main road some twenty minutes later as we were strolling past the door of a coffee shop a man came out and began to fill his pipe with an air of leisurely satisfaction 
His hat and clothes were powdered with white, like those of the workmen whom we had seen come out of the factory. Thorndyke accosted him. Is that a flour mill up the road there? No, sir, pearl shell. I work there myself. Pearl shell, eh? said Thorndyke. I suppose that will be an industry that will tend to attract the aliens. Do you find it so? No, sir, not at all. The work's too odd. We've only got one foreigner in the place, and he ain't an alien. He's a Jap. A Jap? exclaimed Thorndyke. Really? Now, I wonder if that would chance to be our old friend Cote. You remember Cote? he added, turning to me. No, sir, this man's name is Futashima. There was another Jap in the works, a chap named Itu, a pal of Futashima's, but he's left. Ah, oh, I don't know either of them. By the way, usn't there to be a cab yard just about here? There's a yard up Rankin Street where they keep vans and one or two cabs. That chap Itu works there now. Taken to horse flesh, drives a van sometimes. Queer start for a Jap. Very. Thorndyke thanked the man for his information, and we sauntered on towards Rankin Street. The yard was at this time nearly deserted, being occupied only by an ancient and crazy four-wheeler, and a very shabby hansom. Curious old houses, these that back onto the yard, said Thorndyke, strolling into the enclosure. That timber gable now, pointing to a house, from a window of which a man was watching us suspiciously, is quite an interesting survival. "'What's your business, mister?' demanded the man in a gruff tone. "'We are just having a look at these quaint old houses,' replied Thorndyke, edging towards the back of the hansom, and opening his pocket-book as though to make a sketch. "'Well, you can see em from outside,' said the man." So we can, said Thorndyke suavely, but not so well, you know. At this moment, the pocket-book slipped from his hand and fell, scattering a number of loose papers about the ground, under the hansom, and our friend at the window laughed joyously. No hurry, murmured Thorndyke, as I stooped to help him to gather up the papers, which he did, in the most surprisingly slow and clumsy manner. It is fortunate that the ground is dry. He stood up with the rescued papers in his hand and, having scribbled down a brief note, slipped the book in his pocket. Now you'd better mizzle, observed the man at the window. Thank you, replied Thorndyke. I think we had. And with a pleasant nod at the custodian, he proceeded to adopt the hospitable suggestion. Mr. Marchmont has been here, sir, with Inspector Badger and another gentleman, said Polton, as we entered our chambers. They said they would call again about five. Then, replied Thorndyke, as it is now a quarter to five, there is just time for us to have a wash while you get the tea ready. The particles that float in the atmosphere of Limehouse are not all mother of pearl. Our visitors arrived punctually, the third gentleman being, as we had supposed, Mr. Solomon Lowe. Inspector Badger I had not seen before, and he now impressed me as showing a tendency to invert the significance of his own name by endeavouring to draw Thorndyke in, which, however, he was not brilliantly successful. I hope you are not going to disappoint Mr. Lowe, sir, he commenced facetiously. You have had a good look at that hat, 
we saw your marks on it and he expects that you will be able to point us out the man name and address all complete he grinned patronizingly at our unfortunate client who was looking even more haggard and worn than he had been on the previous morning have you have you made any discovery mr lowe asked with pathetic eagerness we examined the hat very carefully and i think we have established a few facts of some interest did your examination of the hat furnish any information as to the nature of the stolen property sir inquired the humorous inspector thorndyke turned to the officer with a face as expressionless as a wooden mask we thought it possible said he that it might consist of works of japanese art such as netsuki's paintings and such like mr lowe uttered an exclamation of delighted astonishment and the facetiousness faded rather suddenly from the inspector's countenance i don't know how you can have found out said he we have only known it half an hour ourselves and the wire came direct from florence to scotland yard perhaps you can describe the thief to us said mr lowe in the same eager tone i dare say the inspector can do that replied thorndyke yes i think so replied the officer he is a short strong man with a dark complexion and hair turning grey he has a very round head and he is probably a workman engaged at some whiting or cement works that is all we know if you can tell us any more sir we shall be very glad to hear it i can only offer a few suggestions said thorndyke but perhaps you may find them useful for instance at thirteen burkett street limehouse there is living a japanese gentleman named futashima who works at badcombe and martin's mother of pearl factory i think that if you were to call on him and let him try on the hat that you have it would probably fit him the inspector scribbled ravenously in his notebook and mr marchmont an old admirer of thorndyke's leaned back in his chair chuckling softly and rubbing his hands then continued my colleague there is in rankin street limehouse a cab-yard where another japanese gentleman named itu is employed you might find out where itu was the night before last and if you should chance to see a handsome cab there number two two four eight one have a good look at it in the frame of the number plate you will find six small holes those holes may have held brads and the brads may have held a false number card at any rate you might ascertain where that cab was at eleven thirty the night before last that is all i have to suggest mr lowe leaped from his chair let us go now at once there is no time to be lost a thousand thanks to you doctor a thousand million thanks come he seized the inspector by the arm and forcibly dragged him towards the door and a few moments later we heard the footsteps of our visitors clattering down the stairs it was not worth while to enter into explanations with them said thorndyke as the footsteps died away nor perhaps with you on the contrary i replied i am waiting to be fully enlightened well then my inferences in this case were perfectly simple ones drawn from well-known anthropological facts the human race as you know is roughly divided into three groups the black the white and the yellow races 
but apart from the variable quality of colour, these races have certain fixed characteristics associated especially with the shape of the skull, of the eye sockets and the hair. Thus, in the black races, the skull is long and narrow, the eye sockets are long and narrow, and the hair is flat and ribbon-like, and usually coiled up like a watch spring. In the white races, the skull is oval, the eye sockets are oval, and the hair is slightly flattened or oval in section and tends to be wavy, while in the yellow or mongol races, the skull is short and round, the eye sockets are short and round, and the hair is straight and circular in section, so that we have, in the black races, long skull, long orbits, flat hair. In the white races, oval skull, oval orbits, oval hair. And in the yellow races, round skull, round orbits, round hair. Now, in this case, we had to deal with a very short, round skull, but you cannot argue from races to individuals. There are many short-skulled Englishmen. But when I found associated with that skull hairs which were circular in section, it became practically certain that the individual was a Mongol of some kind. The mother of pearl dust and the granules of rice starch from the inside of the hat favoured this view, for the pearl shell industry is specially connected with China and Japan, while starch granules from the hat of an Englishman would probably be wheat starch. Then, as to the hair, it was, as I mentioned to you, circular in section and of very large diameter. Now I have examined many thousands of hairs, and the thickest that I have ever seen came from the heads of Japanese, but the hairs from this hat were as thick as any of them. But the hypothesis that the burglar was a Japanese received confirmation in various ways. Thus he was short, though strong and active and the Japanese are the shortest of the Mongol races, and very strong and active. Then his remarkable skill in handling the powerful caretaker, a retired police sergeant, suggested the Japanese art of jujitsu, while the nature of the robbery was consistent with the value set by the Japanese on works of art. Finally, the fact that only a particular collection was taken suggested a special and probably national character in the things stolen, while their portability, you will remember that goods of the value of from eight to twelve thousand pounds, were taken away in two hand packages, was much more consistent with Japanese than Chinese works, of which the latter tend rather to be bulky and ponderous. Still, it was nothing but a bare hypothesis until we had seen Futashima, and indeed is no more now. I may, after all, be entirely mistaken. He was not, however, and at this moment there reposes in my drawing-room an ancient Netsuki, which came as a thank-offering from Mr. Isaac Lowe on the recovery of the booty from a back room in number 13 Burkett Street Limehouse. The treasure, of course, was given in the first place to Thorndyke, but transferred by him to my wife, on the pretense that but for my suggestion of shell dust, the robber would never have been traced, which is, on the face of it, preposterous. End of chapter 3